A quick note before we begin. Though our podcast is focused on the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic, we want to call attention to the Black injustice and police brutality that has been happening. It may be overwhelming to traverse the many resources shared, so we've written out an action pipeline to help. The link is in our description. I'm Nancy. And I'm Catherine. This is Side Effects, a podcast that takes a deep, personal look into the sweeping effects of COVID-19. Last week, we introduced the first three guests, and this week, we'll meet the rest of them. So if you'll remember, a few years ago, Coke had this big advertising campaign. You would be at the store, and if you picked up a soda fridge, all the Cokes in there would have people's names on them. The idea being that you could find one of your friend's names on it and buy it for them. It wasn't clear, but the campaign was called Share a Coke. Right. And the commercial for it had a bunch of teenagers outside, partying, having a good time together. They go to the store, buy some Cokes, all served to them by the same guy, a teenager behind the counter. At the end of the day, one of the teenagers comes back to the store and she has a Coke for the guy behind the counter. Kind of a gift for his hard work serving them all day and they go party and fall in love or whatever. So to begin our show this week, we'll hear from someone who kind of took that to heart. Someone who saw all the hard work others do and wanted to give back using soda. I have toilet paper, bleach, hand sanitizer, paper towels, cooking oil, cleaning products, probably a flower. Like if anybody robbed my car or broke into it, like they would hit the financial jackpot because this is a lot of hard to find stuff. These are the items in Allie McGill's car, but none of these items are for herself. They're for a relief group called Food on the Table, a nonprofit she founded that runs essential errands for those at high risk of COVID-19 in Washington, DC. In early March, Ali sent out a tweet asking those in the at-risk demographic to email her if they needed help running errands. The next day, she found herself sifting through a bloated inbox. Overnight, the tweet had gone viral, amassing over a thousand shares. People who wanted to help had also reached out, and her small team of 10 volunteers exploded to a force of over 3,200. After this, I had a grocery run in Maryland. Before that, I'm dropping off chicken to a senior citizen because I couldn't get it the other day. And then later on today, I'm picking up pots and pans for someone who needs it. He's a grandfather and can't leave the house. So, you know, we want people staying home at safe who's high risk. It seems like life for her has gotten a lot more hectic since COVID-19 began. But as we came to discover... Being this busy isn't unusual. On a typical week, Allie acts as the director of care for her church in Washington, D.C., manages her own publishing company, and advises Lazarus, a nonprofit she founded to help the homeless in Atlanta. And perhaps her fourth job, on top of all of that, is being the self-appointed neighborhood caretaker. I'm very invested in my neighborhood, and I think your neighborhood is where everything starts. I'm described as the Coke lady and the Sprite lady because if you pass my house in the summertime, you're getting a Coke or Sprite. 
I respect mail and package carriers and the people that handle our garbage. And so I often um, have sprites waiting for them uh, on Monday mornings every week, just really trying to make sure, very much care about people knowing their dignity. I don't care who you are, what you do, you are a person of dignity. And yes, I, I sometimes express it via Sprite, <laughs> a weekly Sprite, but just that interaction of knowing I see you and the hard work you're doing and I care. Allie's view on dignity doesn't just translate over things like Cokes and Sprites. She describes it as the motivation for almost everything that she does and perhaps why she's able to tirelessly drive so many projects. We try to get behind where her belief in dignity comes from. I'm about to say something that um, people may now turn off. <laughs> um, I am a Christian, and I believe that I need to behave as the hands and feet of Jesus. Sadly, a lot of my faith has been hijacked publicly by people that, that don't necessarily walk that. But I do believe this is how Jesus would be. And I just try to walk that out. And I believe Jesus believes in the dignity of each person. For Ali, her faith in God was practically always attached to her being. But still, her journey as a Christian wasn't so straightforward. I was brought up in more of the traditional Christianity that we see that a lot of people, you know, bristle against. I was brought up in that. I grew up going to a ACE school, which means I am, up until sophomore year of high school, I am self-taught. This was the 80s, and so, and we weren't allowed to wear pants, so I had to wear culottes and have some really funny, awkward pictures of me in those. <laughs> we always joke about um, if you had a question and it was easy or you thought it was going to be easily answered, you raised the Christian flag for the female monitor. But if you had a hard question, you raised the American flag for the male supervisor. I wasn't allowed to read C.S. Lewis because of witchcraft in it, which is kind of funny because now I love C.S. Lewis. Going to a strict Christian school had a big influence on how Allie saw God in her early years. But as she grew older, she started to reconsider some of those views. I think in my 20s is when I kind of uh, deconstructed that, but really started to broaden some of my thoughts and just see Jesus as more graceful and more compassionate than maybe I was brought up with. The transformation of her view on God mobilized her, inspiring much of the mutual aid work that she does today. After hearing her story, it's really no surprise that Ali named her nonprofit Lazarus. Her philosophy of dignity, her faith in God, it all came together in her work. We throw a large health day, primarily for those experiencing homelessness, but also for anybody who needs anything that we serve. And one day, after one of the health days, a guest was leaving and a volunteer looked at him and said, it was good to see you. You know, she had seen him before. And he looked so deeply in her eyes and it was, he said, it was good to be seen. 
And maybe I identify with both people in that story where I feel seen and thus I want other people to be seen. There is a general feeling in my life that I've been seen by God. And I just want people to feel that. Today, her faith in God still plays a huge role in her life. But now, she's able to have a little more fun with it. I think Jesus would have been fun to hang out with. Like you ask him a simple question and he goes into a long story and a parable. (laughs) In March, when the coronavirus first started ramping up, Allie was already looking for ways that she could help. She started by signing up for the National Institute of Health's antibody tests to help with the COVID-19 studies. But then, something caught her eye. There was a tweet about two days beforehand that I read of a woman who, um, an elderly couple, walked up to her car crying because they were afraid to go in the store. And that really hit something in me. Um, because I'm capable of going into the store for somebody. In typical fashion, she started to think about the ways that she could help and serve her community. At that time, I'm like, I'm capable. I could go grocery shopping. Our church is young. So I tested it. um, I first started with my neighborhood Facebook group. and like, hey, does anybody uh, need grocery runs? I'm happy to do that. And got a lot of response of... I'll help you do that. So by then I knew what there were a few people, plus for the care team, there's a few volunteers. So that's when I tweeted out on on March 12th, the same idea, knowing that I now had some people that really did want to help and have it go broader than my neighborhood. And that is how Food on the Table got started. I try to be a team player. And if we're going through a global pandemic, I mean, we each have our way to give to help our neighbor. And so I just look at the ways I can. Our guest, Ali McGill, founder of the nonprofit Food on the Table. Charitable organizations have a lot of work to be doing these days, providing food, shelter, PPEs, and helping people keep their spirits up. Other places like grocery stores, restaurants, mom-and-pop stores have to completely readapt to how they operate to cope. What about the places where it's nearly impossible to maintain business as usual during a pandemic? Our next guest works at a place like that and isn't certain what will come of his job in the next few weeks. We all protested in front of our warehouse to raise concerns about the the virus in our warehouse. They seem not to care. They don't want to protect us. They're telling us that they're going to clean the warehouse weeks later, which is a complete lie. That's Jordan Flowers, a robotics technician at Amazon JFK in Staten Island, New York. If you've followed the Amazon warehouse strikes in the past couple of months, you've probably heard of Chris Smalls an Amazon worker who was fired shortly after the first Amazon JFK protest on March 30th. But what you might not know is that Chris co-organized the protest with three other warehouse workers, Derek Palmer, Gerald Brayson, and Jordan Flowers. Washington Post captured a photo of Jordan at their first strike. He's holding a bright pink sign that says, Treat your workers like your customers. 
Amazon's Staten Island Fulfillment Center was the first in New York. When it was built in 2017, the Staten Island Borough President called the center the biggest single job creator in Staten Island's history, creating more than 2,250 new jobs. The facility was the size of nearly 15 football fields and would employ humans and robots to help fulfill orders. They were mentioning that they were building an Amazon warehouse. It's the other side of Staten Island, but it's like in a secluded area. Like you wouldn't really even picture walking over there. Indeed actually emailed me stating that, you know, Amazon soon opened up on Staten Island and you, they're going to start hiring right away. Jordan was attending the College of Staten Island at the time, living with his mom while finishing school. But at the beginning of 2018, she got another job in Florida. Jordan chose to stay behind, wanting to finish school and pursue a budding basketball career. He needed work to support himself, and Amazon was the clear answer. Being that I was 19, hearing that you're getting $17.50 an hour, you get paid weekly, you get medical benefits, my age, you, you can never beat that job. You can, that's like the golden ticket for everything for you. So my, my daily expenses, my rent, my animals, my reptile, my dog, my two cats. Yeah, everything just became independent on me. It was a golden opportunity, but the work wasn't easy. Jordan logged 12 to 13 miles for each 10-hour shift he worked. He described how he and the other Amazon warehouse staff have to work cohesively to fulfill the massive order list each day. So on a day-to-day basis, really, being a robotics technician, my job is to make sure that uh, full operation is always running. I make sure the robots are consistently moving. I make sure that these pods that hold customers' orders are being picked out on time. All the pickers are consistently working. All the counters are working. And we also have another group called Stow. They stow the items inside and confirm it's in the system. So my job is to make sure all these group of workers are consistently working. Each picker has to pick 3,200 units a day. So if you do the math, that's almost 750,000 packages getting shipped out of the Staten Island warehouse every single day. Being an athlete, the regular workdays didn't take too much of a toll on Jordan, even if they were demanding. But the workload during the peak seasons was a different story. During prime week and peak season, uh, they can mandate overtime without telling you. They can mandate any type of overtime whenever they need to. And what they say is it can be for customers' orders, which is understandable, but to mandate overtime is more like you're forcing them to come in now. The pull off 50, 55, even 60 hours. Our first peak 2018 after Thanksgiving, so we're talking about almost five or six weeks, we were pulling 60 hours up until January 1st. And to be clear, Amazon doesn't give their staff a choice. The overtime is mandatory. If you don't come in, you'll be held accountable. And we actually had a mandatory overtime day, so you have no choice but to come in. If you have a doctor's appointment, if it's your day off to go hang out with your friends, you may plan to go to the bar, go see a sporting event, a concert, or just to hang at the beach or something, and they mandate you to come in for overtime, you have no choice but to come in. We were doing 10 hours, six days a week, so... Uh, I would come in at 7, 7.05, and I would just work until like 6 o'clock, walking all day, continuously walking. My back started to hurt a little bit. I would see that uh, my leg would start getting tense. It would start cramping. I would start getting Charlie horses. I wasn't drinking as much water because, like I said, I, I really couldn't stop working. So walking that many times and trying to get a water break, it was really taking a toll. And there's another system that Amazon uses, tracking TOT, or time off task. 
Basically, Amazon will track how many packages a person scans per hour, and if they drop below a certain amount, they'll be given a warning. If it happens too many times, they can be fired. According to a report on this practice from the website The Verge, three quarters of workers avoid using the bathroom to prevent falling below quota. When Jordan was previously dealing with a knee injury, some of the higher ups at Amazon JFK swooped in on his numbers. My manager, like she really liked me, and she kind of like she kind of looked out for me. So with my knee being hurt, she took me off pick and she made me a counter. So all I did was count bins all day. I made sure the inventory is right. As I came back, they were already asking me, "Oh, we need you to pick. We need you to do this, that." I didn't even have accommodations, and all the time they would then without the pick rates, they're coming to me talking about my count rate, making sure that I'm above my rate or at rate, that I'm not taking too much TOT. If you have over, let's say, 25 minutes of TLT, you can get a first write-up. First write-up, second write-up, and then final written warning determination. When the COVID-19 pandemic forced Americans to retreat to the safety of their homes, the number of orders Amazon workers had to fulfill shot through the ceiling. They started mandating people for overtime because... With the pandemic, you know, people really can't be outside. And, you know, Amazon, we can ship your order to your doorstep. That's when customers' orders started skyrocketing. So they started mandating people to start coming in and start working overtime. But for Jordan, working during a global pandemic was one order he could not fulfill for Amazon. I'm immunocompromised. I have a weakened immune system. It's called lupus nephritis. I got it back in eighth grade. The start of eighth grade, second year, 2012, just starting the year. That was like the eye opener. So my medical condition, the way it works is my white blood cells, it attacks my body. If you guys had the cold, like a common cold, it'd be like a week, week and a half. But in my case, it could be two weeks or even longer. Just because my white blood cells is fighting my body and trying to fight that off. So that's why I said in this time being that this virus is out, it's way, way more accessible to me to catch it. Even if I had mild condition, I would still have to treat it like critical because that's how weak my immune system is. The way the facility is, there's like five, six, seven people on top of each other. So I already know that warehouse was going to be like the brightest red light you will ever see in your life. This right here is not going to be safe for me while this pandemic is out. And so on February 28th, Jordan put in his request for time off. And in March, the first positive case at Amazon JFK was confirmed. But the corporation's reaction to this news wasn't enough, according to Jordan. They wasn't quiet, but they did wait about a week and a half to actually mention that someone did test positive. And that was already unfair because when that first dude tested positive, he was already around five other workers that ended up testing positive. And you're waiting a week and a half to notify us, which you shouldn't. You have to let us know right away. Our first dude who tested positive infected five others within the next week. It's just, it was spreading like wildfire in there, and they couldn't contain it. it. It was like probably every two days. I could estimate every two to three days, we'd get a text message saying that we got additional cases. People started staying home. It got to the point where not a lot of workers were there, so they couldn't really keep headcount. The managers would have to hop in and start picking items themselves. When we first started the warehouse, we had hand sanitizer, Purell hand sanitizer bottles everywhere in the warehouse. Now at this time, we only have four that's active in the warehouse. There's only four. 
When Amazon released their Q1 net income for 2020, CEO Jeff Bezos accompanied the report with a statement, announcing, quote, If you're a shareholder in Amazon, you may want to take a seat because we're not thinking small. We expect to spend the entirety of our $4 billion Q2 operating profit on COVID-related expenses getting products to customers and keeping employees safe. He released this statement on April 30th, 2020. But Amazon warehouse workers have been protesting and going on strike for almost a full month before it. When the number of cases at the Staten Island warehouse continued to grow in March, the staff started speaking up. How was Amazon going to protect them? And what did they have to do to be heard? It's, it's disfuriating. He can't take care of his workers. He says he's protecting us. They, get, they give us medical benefits. From day one, you get a stock unit. You get all these things you could ever ask for as a city job. But when tough times come and we need you really to protect us, you're looking the other way, look for customers besides your employees. It's the fact that a billion dollar man could think about his customers before his employees. In next week's episode, we continue exploring the story of how Jordan and the rest of his team organized the first Amazon warehouse protest in response to COVID-19, garnering national media attention and igniting a series of walkouts from other warehouses across the nation. That's Jordan Flowers, a robotics technician at Amazon who's trying to strike a balance between his work and health when both hang on the line. Still, he's not in it alone. A recent report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics rates unemployment in the U.S. at 13.3% for the month of May. For context, the previous peak during the Great Recession was at 10.6%. That number is even higher for young people, 23.2% of whom are without jobs right now. Next, we'll be speaking with two guys who are trying to close that gap and get young people hired when it's never been harder. So I work at LinkedIn and one of the things I see every time I log on nowadays are posts from people looking for jobs. When COVID-19 hit, students and professionals across the country were upended from their internships and jobs. In response, many of them turned to their networks to ask for help, sharing their resume, personal stories, and ambitions online. And as a result of this increase in job seekers, one organization in particular started to get a lot more attention than they expected. When the news first broke out, we were actually supposed to do a workshop in person. We did the workshop, but then I realized that this is going to be probably the last workshop we do for a while because the interaction virtually wasn't as impactful as the one in person. And so I thought that students and and organizations and universities wouldn't want to partner with us to do these workshops and engagements for the universities. But it was actually the opposite. That's Jonathan Javier. For the past few years, both him and his friend Jerry have been running an organization called One Salting which focuses specifically on helping students from non-traditional backgrounds get into their careers. There's, there's a clear opportunity gap today between the high-achieving professionals and students who come from non-traditional backgrounds, whether that's non-target schools, whether that's different socioeconomic classes, whatever that may mean. And on the other hand, you have 
high-performing students from top universities. One versus the other is, is arguably, there really isn't much net difference. So why is it that it's so much harder for these non-traditional, non-representative schools, for these students who come from these backgrounds, so much harder for them to break into these top firms? And that gap that we see, that's what we try to bridge within one Sultan. Over the years, OneSulting has held numerous in-person events and workshops around networking and has helped tons of students overcome career obstacles and get into their dream jobs. So when COVID-19 hit, many students, at a loss for what to do, started messaging them to look for advice. They started getting flooded with messages on LinkedIn, hundreds every day. Their page following tripled, and their online events were attended by more than 13,000 people. Honestly, it's just long nights and messages from Jonathan at 2am and working weekends. And, and to me, like, I think most people would kind of look at look at this and say, hey guys, like, you guys are workaholics. But for me, it, it doesn't feel like work. It's not work. Prior to COVID-19, both Jonathan and Jerry were already well known on LinkedIn. They both frequently made posts that talked candidly about their own job seeking journey. The rejections, the unknowns, and the long-awaited successes. Their content really resonated with a lot of young professionals who too were struggling to break into their careers. We talked to them about their story, of how they managed to get their foot in the door, overcome their own obstacles, and build their careers, and how all of that makes them driven to help others today. I come from a low-income first-generation background, so when I was growing up, my parents just didn't really know how to provide guidance. Um, my dad would work, you know, from 7 a.m. to 9 p.m., come home, eat dinner, then spend two hours trying to figure out, all right, how do I get my kids to college? Uh, and what was crazy is that out of our entire family tree, we're the only family that was here, right? And so as we thought about what that meant for us to go into college, like we didn't have anyone to b- bounce ideas off of, right, or to learn. Even just trying to figure out what college, right? And I remember when I was applying, you know, when I was received all my acceptances, uh, it ultimately just came down to me being like, all right, well, what school is going to give me the most amount of money and what school is going to allow me to leave with the least amount of debt? And I chose Babson out of a complete whim. It was crazy because I remember when my friends were sending me off, my parents were sending me off, my parents struggled to get $400, $500 to get my plane ticket, buy me a hotel for the night so that I could start my orientation the day after I flew over and remember feeling like, dude, I am alone. Like I don't know anyone in the Boston area, let alone even the Northeast. And I like, I don't know how I'm going to figure this out. As they went through college, Jerry at Babson and Jonathan at UC Riverside, both started to think about their first professional job. For both of them though, landing their first gig didn't come easily. So many of my friends at the time had uncles, aunts, moms, sisters, brothers, dogs that were working at PwC, McKinsey, Bain, right? And they just snapped their fingers and got an internship at their home countries. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's so insane to me. I'm just applying to everything. I had an Excel sheet with all of my applications and I would put all the companies into there. I put their career pages. I put if I applied or not. I would put if I got into the interview process. And there were hundreds of them. And some of them were the most random companies. Like I actually would go to downtown LA and Irvine to look at the skylines and look at what companies 
were there because I always thought like, okay, like I'm going to put these companies into this Excel sheet and then I'm going to go look at their careers page so I can see the different positions that I can apply to. The crazy thing is, is that with that Excel sheet, a lot of them were just red. Red meaning I never received a response or I just received a rejection letter. They both talked about the arduous hours they'd spend, cooped up in their bedrooms, preparing for interviews. As the children of first-generation immigrants, they didn't have personal networks they could reach out to. But moreover, they didn't even really consider that reaching out was an option. I was scared of reaching out to people because with Asian culture, I remember my parents would tell me, Jonathan, don't ask for help from strangers. For Filipinos, yeah, my, my parents were always like, Jonathan, you know, you can always ask your career center. Like, I wouldn't recommend reaching out to random people because you don't know who they are. Uh, you, you've never seen them before. You've never met them before. What Jonathan described wasn't unfamiliar to me. Growing up, my parents had always told me their classic immigration story. We came here with two suitcases. We borrowed money from our friends. We didn't know anyone, but we worked hard, relied on ourselves, and provided you with a better life. For many immigrants, making it to America and taking part of the American dream is the hallmark of self-reliance and hard work, and they take a lot of pride in that. But sometimes, we need a little help and investment from others. Initially, what I, what I made a mistake on is I would network with people to get jobs from them, right? I would be like, all right, cool, like, uh, let me ask my six questions. Hey, can I have a referral? But what I didn't realize at the time during my sophomore year is like the way to get someone to invest into me isn't to find someone with the best job title, but it's to find someone who really understood me as a person, understood my value proposition and knew that I was just a kid that was hopefully destined to succeed. And I just needed a small investment from someone else. And I remember there was this one person, her name was Juliana, and she was just so awesome. She would go out of her way to like introduce me to her managing director, introduce me to all these other people. And I had like nothing to offer her back. But now being on the opposite side, what I didn't realize at the time was what I was giving her wasn't something of material, but rather I was showing her that her investment was worth it. That her investment of 30 minutes and all that was worth it to me. Asking for help, it seems is more than just posing a question and expecting the other person to give you what you want. It's about sharing yourself, your story, your needs, being authentic, perhaps letting go of the pride you hold around being self-reliant and independent. And in the process, letting someone in to help you not just survive, but flourish. To be honest, I don't remember the details of what exactly she did for me, but I remember how she made me feel. She made me feel that everything was going to be okay, that I was doing all the right things. She made me realize that like, dude, I can see how much heart you have. You'll be fine. With the help they received from people in their networks, both Jonathan and Jerry were able to jumpstart their careers. And they felt compelled to pay it forward, which is where one salting comes in. For me and Jonathan, the reason why we try to reply to every single message on LinkedIn or if they tag us on a post or something is because like, we try to not let our egos get, get the better of us. It's so easy for once you're a professional to be like, all right guys, like I'm good, 
see you guys later. But it's so hard for professionals to empathize and being like, I remember what it was like to be in your shoes. These are the three things that we're going through in my mind. What do you think? And so for me, I, I hope that I never get to the point where I feel like I'm too good to help students because that feeling is still very fresh in my mind of just trying to just figure it out. And the key thing I always think about when I'm making LinkedIn posts or when I'm trying to create content is just trying to figure out like, if freshman year Jerry saw this, would he think this would be helpful? And if so, then I, I would click yes. That's Jerry and Jonathan, who currently run One Salting and have been helping students and young professionals during the pandemic overcome obstacles and get back into their careers. The next time we talk to them, we'll explore how exactly they managed to help these students get back on their feet, all while doing it virtually. Thanks so much to all of our guests for speaking with us. Next week, we'll hear from them about the turning point, that moment when they knew that the world was changing faster than they could keep up with, and what they did to stay afloat. If you like the podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We really appreciate the support. Side Effects is produced by Catherine and Nancy Shu, along with Joshua Chan, Sam Yellowhorse Kessler, Jason Lee, Miranda Pan, and Amy Shen. Special thanks to Taracola for all your help and support. To stay updated on our show, make sure to subscribe and follow us at Side Effects Pod. That's at S I D E E F F E C T S P O D on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Stay safe and healthy. And we'll see you next Monday.